Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hey, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment, and welcome to another episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or you can also email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. So today is, as they used to say on a lot of 80s TV shows, a very special episode of Totally 80s. One very near and dear to my heart, because first of all, we are talking about pop and rock magazines of the 1980s, which is basically why I am here, why I do what I do. My formative years were spent at the newsstand at Walden Books at the Topanga Mall, stocking up on issues of Rolling Stone, Circus, Smash Hits, of course, all the pinup magazines like Tiger Beat 16 and Team Beat, so I could have all the Duran Duran wallpaper I needed for my bedroom and school locker. And of course, issues of Cream. And that's what made me want to write for magazines as well. And here we are talking about magazines instead. So on top of all of that, I'm welcoming two of the people that really made my career possible, probably the two most instrumental people in my entire career and people I'm honored to call colleagues and friends. So first, I have the editor-in-chief of Cream Magazine from what I believe were the magazine's most lucrative years, 1979 to 1986, an esteemed legendary rock journalist, who was featured in the long time in the making documentary Cream, America's only rock and roll magazine. Pretty much the man who taught me everything I know. And I maybe taught him a few things over the years because I worked for him for almost two decades since I was five years old. I was a child prodigy at launch and then at Yahoo, of course. Please welcome to the show, Dave DiMartino. Dave, Dave's here, man. Good to see you too, both uh, Lori as well. Uh, I have to say it's been a while, Lindsay, uh, and it's great to be here. It's great to talk about Cream. and. Uh, Everything. And yeah, you taught me an awful lot, I have to admit. As much, whatever I taught you, you taught me as well. Yeah, you poor guy having to sit next to me for all the years you did. Uh, I welcome you coming back. You learned a lot about American Idol and Duran Duran from me. <laughs> so you mentioned Lori. So yes, also joining me on the show is my sister from another mister, a fellow Durani, a woman who was my coworker at Sirius XM Volume Rest in Peace for many years, actually pretty much got me the job there, like talked me up really well. She is the co-author with Jonathan Bernstein of Mad World, an oral history of new wave artists and songs that define the 80s. So obviously she and I have a lot in common. She also got her start writing and publishing the quarterly Duranzine fanzine, Too Much Information. And she later co-founded Two People. We're basically the same person. Welcome, Lori Majewski. Yay! Uh, as if this show wasn't completely made for me to be on it. Listen to this. It's wow. so exciting to have you both on. I mean, you both kind of represent different interest of me, different, you know, eras of my career, because you definitely come from two different backgrounds. Laura, you and I are obviously peers. You probably like, like I just said, started your lifelong love of pop and of writing about pop from looking at the magazines, the teen magazines and the music magazines of the eighties. And uh, I'm not trying to start any fights between you, but Dave back then was probably writing shit about a lot of the bands who like snarky captions about Simon Le bon. 
Um, but we're all friends now. So uh, I may have written an angry letter or two on my Hello Kitty stationery to, uh, uh, to Dave at one time, but you know, it, that's all water under the bridge. And um, and now we're all kind of veterans in the business. Funny how life works out, huh? Exactly. So I guess maybe, you know, I've sort of given you your little bios, but why don't you both like, you know, kind of quickly say how you got your start? Like what was the first for you had into music journalism this predates the 80s possibly for you <laughs> yeah for me well, i'll go first since chronologically i guess that's what i do age before beauty dave <laughs> there you go well said well except there are exceptions in, in some cases uh mine uh, a uh i i started writing about music pretty early on i, I mean like uh, i wrote i was the editor of my high school paper was writing reviews of like literally it sounds like a dorky thing to say but stuff like the cool stuff velvet underground stuff uh this is like 69 70 71 college 71 worked as the entertainment editor of the the college paper there and reviewed and interviewed an awful lot of people music people from that job ultimately i ended up meeting the people at cream and in 79 i started over there as an editorial assistant and then I stayed at Cream and kind of worked my way up, became the editor-in-chief ultimately, till 86. Then uh, I went to Billboard as the L.A. Bureau Chief, stayed there for about five years, went over to uh, Teen People Affiliate Entertainment Weekly for about, uh, about two years or something like that. Then I went to Musician Magazine briefly while I was writing a book about singer-songwriters. I I'm sorry, it's just taking so long. Then got a lot to cover. Yeah, I know. Then, You've done a lot uh, with your life. Thank you, Miss. Uh, as have you. So, so uh, then I ended up doing a. Uh, I got invited to, uh, to to talk to Bob Roback and, and Dave Goldberg at what would become Launch CD-ROM magazine. It sounded great. It sounded like a good thing professionally for me to do. Those were the days when interactive media was sending out floppy disks with, like, uh, you know, and that was the extent of it. Uh, it was a good time to get in, shall we say. And it then, was totally '90s. It was to that's for the totally '90s episode, the golden age of not magazines, but the internet, CD-ROMs. We thought CD-ROMs were going to be a thing. You got you know. that right. I, I have an AOL disc that I just found recently that's here as a <laughs> as a, uh, as a thing put my coke on. But anyway, uh, within like a year or so, probably maybe '97, but probably '96. Lindsay, you certainly know. Lindsay came on board. '97. Yeah. Okay. Uh, she was. She was the the web editor, which sounds funny to say now, because oh my we, God. we were focusing on the the uh, CD-ROM. But this internet thing, you know, the super highway, it might happen. The information super highway was kicking into high gear, and you needed someone to go to http slash org slash ca, and here we are. I bet Lindsay and she was great and she did a whole lot of fantastic stuff. And I, I think I think her peak experience was probably when she dutifully went in, on the road with Queensryche for me when I wanted someone to do that. That was actually like literally the, the first that was 97. That was the first um, press trip I ever was sent on. Yeah. But, you know, I got to. During my time at launch, which became Yahoo, where I still am at, you know, you know, the, the peak was when you sent me in to London to interview my favorite band of all time, The Cure. That's like literally the happiest day of my life. No offense oh, to anyone out this there. this is where you did that. That's where I did that. And that's yep. Dave's doing. Thank you, Dave. So like, no offense to anyone who was like, oh, the best day of my life was when my child was born and when I got married. F that. <laughs> the best day of my life 
was when I went to London to interview my 80s hero, The Cure, I, I recommend that everybody listen to the All Cure episode I did of Totally 80s with Jenny V, who's the only person I know. I heard who that. It's great. Well, there's a connection to that because she was voted, Jenny V, who's from Eagles of Death Metal and a bunch of other bands. She's the biggest Cure fan I know. And Sassy Magazine, she won a contest to be Cure's biggest fan at Sassy Magazine. And I definitely want to talk about Sassy. And I remember that contest, too. Wow. Yeah. She sent a dollhouse filled with dolls that she made, a Christmas dollhouse for Robert Smith. And she wrote 365 poems signed in blood about the cure. So I'm glad she won. I'm still trying to find that dollhouse for her. Maybe you have some connections, Lori, because I'm so impressed that you worked at Sassy, which started in 89. is one of a huge messy. We'll get into some Sassy talk. Absolutely. But I want to go to your history because... Like me, I started doing a fanzine in the 90s, but you started doing a fanzine that was actually a Duran Duran fanzine. And the way we met was when our colleague, Shirley Halpern, who's now at Variety, pretty much set you and I up on a blind date because she was like, uh, oh, I know someone who's a huge Duran Duran fan. She's even a bigger Duran Duran fan than you. I'm like, yeah, we'll see about that. She's right, actually, you are, because I didn't, I didn't have a whole fanzine about it. But that was how we initially bonded. So many of my worlds go back to Duran Duran. And um, the first time I ever interviewed Duran Duran was because Dave sent me to interview them around the time of Medazzaland, I believe. But yeah, you that's how you got your start. Kind of like because of your love of the of what our, our teen idols were, which we're so lucky our teen idols were the bands that are in your Mad World book. They were like new wave bands. They were like cool bands. We weren't worshiping, no offense to the teen idols of eras before or since, but our teen idols were like Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, ABC, Human League, you know, Michael Hutchins, you know, Ian McCulloch, cute boys, but also like cool musicians. We're so lucky we had that as our formative experience, to be honest. Don't you think? I, I totally agree. And I couldn't have missed this episode because my life really is a juxtaposition of magazines and music. It really, really is. I knew from the first time I saw John Taylor on the Hunger Like the Wolf video, that everything I was going to do in my life was going to be for them. And it's still kind of is. <laughs> Are you aware that's the first video I saw and I had the exact same visceral reaction? <laughs> and actually, just to be real quick, because I do want to get your story. I have a very vivid memory of the very first issue of Smash Hits I bought. Smash is a big magazine in my world that most of the pinups, most of my wall was covered with Smash Hit pinups. And there was an uh, it wasn't even a pinup. It was actually like the back glossy cover of Smash It's was an advertisement for the Rio album, which had just come out. And it was like one of the pictures of them in like their kind of like safari wear. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm in. Count me in. Like it was that much of a lightning bolt to me as well. And the video, I very much remember exactly where I was when I saw it, everything. So it's so, yeah, we're the same person. Go on. Exactly. So I knew right then and there, I was like, this is, I need to meet these people and that's going to be my life. Mm -hmm. And a few years later, I was probably about 13. I was reading Star Hits magazine, the American cousin of the aforementioned Smash Hits. You know what? I may have been, I may have been, I'm glad you have that detail. It may have been Star Hits, not Smash Hits, because it was, that was an easy, it, I was not aware there were two, actually. There was an American one. Yes, the American one was called Star Hits. The Smash Hits was actually edited by the Pet Shop Boy, Neil Tennant. Neil Tennant is probably the best example, besides Chrissy Hine, who used to write for The Enemy, of a pop star or rock star who 
made that transition from journalism. Exactly. So what ended up happening is I was reading an issue of Star Hits and there was an interview with In Excess, who at that time I called Inks. John Taylor had said that they were his favorite new band and I didn't hear anyone say their name. So I just thought they were called Inks. Anyway, I was reading this Inks interview and I noticed that it was written by a woman named Suzanne Cologne. And I was like, I kind of think I know what I want to do. I want to be her. Like I want to grow up and I want to be a journalist. And so everything that you just mentioned that you wrote for the school newspaper, I started doing. I wrote for the school newspaper. I wrote for the 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 town newspaper. I wrote for my county newspaper. Then in college, I was the arts editor of the newspaper. By the time I was 19, I'd already achieved my interview success with Duran Duran. And I guess I was like, I can do this for real because I had started my own fanzine as, as Lindsay pointed out. And um, that was all Duran Duran. It was called Too Much Information. Do you still have copies of it? I do. It was originally called the Definitive Duranzine. And then when they put out that album, I changed it to TMI, Too Much Information, the Definitive the definitive Duranzine, which can still be bought at record runner in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. It's amazing. It was a big deal because when I graduated college, my first interview that I went on for magazines at Spin, well, actually, I was still in college. I was uh, an intern. I went for the internship and they said, well, if you can put together, you know, a magazine on your own, I think you could put together a couple of pages a month here. So I was like, yeah, I I guess I could, but I did not get that job. Eventually I, I was an intern there, but I was up on my college graduation day. I was up for three jobs. One was to be the obituaries writer at the Jersey journal, which I would probably be upset about, except that's what John Travolta's first job was in Perfect before he goes to Rolling Stone. He was literally the obituaries writer at the Jersey Journal. That is a very deep fact. But I didn't want that job, you know, but hey, it was my number three. Uh, My number two was Sassy to be uh, a staff writer. And my number one was to be an editor at Spin. The spin job went to some relative of one of the editors. So check, didn't get that. Sassy went to someone who was already on staff who got bumped up. So I didn't get that. So yeah, I started doing the obituaries <laughs> at the Jersey Journal. I mean, that's a good way to sort of not only get your history down, but to learn how to be a journalist that has to like fact check and, you know. Well, fact-checking, yes, I've learned fact-checking at Spin. I really learned my fact-checking at the Jersey Journal, but it was six months later that I got a job at YM, which was Young Miss, Young but Miss. now was called Young and Modern. Oh, so that's is that what YM said? We're, we're going to definitely get into some stuff that Dave, a, a father of two boys who you know, <laughs> probably didn't read Young Miss or YM or Young and Modern. But it, I did, you know, I don't know how you felt about YM at that time, but, you know, you did work at Sassy at one point, right? Yes, I was an intern there during the Kurt and Courtney cover thing. And uh, I got to write a few things, but I didn't get paid full on to work there. Because of all the teen magazines that were aimed at young girls, at teen girls, I tended to find them kind of preachy, kind of maybe written by your, seems like they were written by your mom. 
And even if you have a cool mom, just written by like some kind of an older authority figure. And Sassy felt like it was written by your cool aunt or your cool older sister. And of course, taking it back to music, they had the cute band alert, which sort of flipped the whole objectification on its, on its head a little bit, you know, although the cute band alert did, it was equal opportunity. They had like, you know, the pixies or the breeders or stuff in there. Dave's many tasks at cream which you know is probably the most revered rock magazine around ever even more so than rolling stone i mean i've witnessed it firsthand dave from working with you all these years when a lot of people grew up like they knew who you were you'd be interviewing like nashville pussy or that band the shrine or whatever these rock bands and when they realized that it was the dave DiMartino from cream interviewing them they were completely honored to meet you. I mean, cream meant a lot to people. And one of your jobs there was sort of to write the, the famous snarky captions. Many of them came oh, yeah. from your brilliant mind. And, you know, um, a lot of people think that cream and just in general music journalism, like there was that documentary you were in that the golden era of music journalism and cream was the seventies and, you know, the Lester Banks era, et cetera. And you can make a strong case for that. But I would say, I mean, this is probably a function of my age when I discovered Cream, but the 80s were really, I think, a golden era for music magazines. And like, as I mentioned at the top of the show, when you were at its helm as the editor, that was the most like newsstand lucrative time for the magazine, right? Well, yeah. In fact, I, I should point this out because it coincides with what you guys have been talking about. There's a guy right now that is going through all of the Cream magazines from the beginning to the end and reviewing each one. It's fascinating for me to read because basically now he's the issue he's on today is precisely the first cover interview we did with with Robert Smith of The Cure. It was an interesting time to be working there because we were kind of like transitioning from the sort of dopey heavy metal late 70s, Jay Giles, no, no, no slide those guys, to trying to become something more palatable. MTV came in and so suddenly we were having features where we used to have like Motley Crue, et cetera, in the early days of the 80s, we'd, we'd bring in some MTV type bands, the Thompson Twins, Howard Jones. It was kind of a weird time because it was kind of like, uh, you know, Duran Duran, we, you know, they were, they were, they sold quite a few issues for us. Uh, and we used to make fun of them under the captions. Uh, sorry, guys, but it was, it was great fun. So we, we ended up uh, putting out special magazines devoted to like hair metal or heavy metal. And so we could kind of like break off that audience and not, you know, the the the, the cream pitch, which was kind of like self-defeating, but we were young editors, relatively speaking, was put in somebody on the cover that everybody likes and then write a feature about them saying how stupid they are. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, that sucks, Dave. That's mean. It's bad. But, it was know. a mean, I mean, it was a great time, but it was a mean time. What I think is the funniest thing is, yes, I was into all that stuff. I was into all that hair metal. The cream audience was probably... You know, this is something that, you know, we've all dealt with, you know, rock, those hard rock, rock purists, the kind of people who don't want anything but Uriah Heep and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, they probably didn't want to read about Madonna and the Pet Shop Boys and Cream. Did you struggle with this to, like, have the balance between the hair metal, the new wave, the goth, all of that in one mainstream, pretty mainstream rock magazine at this point? Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting struggle. It was kind of fun because because since we were given the role of being like, how can I put this politely, like obnoxious douchebags when we wrote when we wrote captions, we were allowed to do whatever we wanted to. The problem with it was the end result, which was, and you know what I'm talking about here, you knew you were always going to satisfy about 50 or 60% of your audience and, and at the same time give them like 40% of stuff they don't really care about one way or the other. This is kind of integral to the, the 80s magazine mindset. 
prior to the existence of MTV, you know, there, there really weren't too many places for artists to go. Okay. There, even USA Today barely had a, an own national, you know, like music writer. So they kind of beggars, you know, can't be choosers. They would come to cream and they say, well, listen, we know that you really wrote a, a crappy story about the, you know, you did, you didn't like the last album, uh, you know, by a named Dopey band, you know, uh, there's so many. Boston. Journey. I was going to say Kansas. So Kansas, Kansas and Boston. Oh, okay. Kansas is a great example. Okay? <laughs> but anyway, the point is we come back, they, we put them in the cover and they, we told you, you asked us, we put a story about Kansas. We, we actually never did, but it's, it's still <laughs> interesting. And here's what you get when you ask cream to do a Kansas story. And I said, okay, we get it. But certainly enemy, you know, this predates, you know, the eighties, but people like Nick Kent, you know, Right. Lester Bangs and Cream, yourself and other people, Cream, even with Sassy, you know, I'm sure you remember, Lori, like people like Christina Kelly and stuff. They were names that we knew and we would read anything. You probably had some writers, maybe Suzanne Cologne were someone that you just would read no matter what it was, because you just, you know, I don't think that exists anymore. I don't know if that has existed since maybe the early to mid 90s at the latest. I mean, probably news writers like you yeah. know, Daily Beast or Maggie Haberman or, you know, from the Times, people who are news writers. Um, nowadays, I wonder maybe Rob Sheffield, who writes a lot about yeah. not only music we love, but also Harry Styles and Taylor Swift. He's acquired quite a following by writing about today's pop stars. But that's it. You're right. You know, I can't really and think about anyone else. But I do think one of the reasons he's probably survived and maybe some other writers who started in the 70s, 80s, or 90s haven't or moved on to do other things was because he does, as you point out, write about new music. He doesn't just write about how great Duran Duran or David Bowie were or whatever. He writes about Taylor Swift and he writes about Harry Styles a lot. You're right. I'm curious, since you know you grew up in this era, Lori, what were the magazine's did you read Cream? Like, what were the mag your go-to magazines besides Star Hits, of course? That well, Star Hits was my favorite, and it's short-lived, but I still have all of the copies, all of my copies oh, um, from then. I, I think uh, I too did not love the girl magazines. I did not love prom, lipstick, all of that stuff. It's like they were just preaching kind of like an '80s version of the '50s girl. You know, like how to be kind of like the perfect girl. So I read the music magazines and yes, I did read Cream and I and I read Rolling Stone, but probably about the late 80s, I remember a cover of Spin with Jim Morrison on the cover. And it's it said like hot, you know, like sexy and dead. That was the cover line. And it was around the time that they were putting out the Oliver Stone biopic. And I have to tell you, I subscribed from that issue. I became obsessed with The Doors, who I was already a fan of. But no, I became obsessed after that. And I remember there was a spin cover also of Mick Jagger very early on. That was a young, young, young Mick Jagger. And when I read those pages, I'm citing older rock stars. But yet when I opened the pages, I found that the magazine spoke to Gen X. I don't even know if we had a name then. I don't think we were known as Gen X yet. 
Yeah, more than like Rolling Stone did. And Cream was fun, I got to tell you, and the Boy Howdy stuff. And I loved all of that. But I felt like Spin felt, I felt erudite reading it. <laughs> like, it, you know, I remember they had the AIDS columns, which now mm. is, you know, very controversial in, in how they reported that stuff. But then we turned the corner and going into the 90s and they had Depeche Mode on the cover, you know, Dave Gahan. They had Morrissey on the cover. They, more than Rolling Stone, were speaking to my generation, I felt. And then, of course, they got to Nirvana and all that grunge stuff a lot earlier yeah. than, than, than Rolling Stone did. I'm curious for Dave thoughts on that spin cover. Cause I don't know if you know, Laurie, that like, you know, the doors are a very important band to Dave. Dave, you were, you were at like the infamous, like did he or did he not expose himself Florida show? Like he was there. Wow. I was at that show in Miami. Yeah. Well, did he do it or not? Cut to the chase. I have to say, yeah, he okay. did do it. And I mean, I mean like it's, it's, it's a huge, I hate to say bone of contention, but it's true <laughs> in this instance. The, 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 the irony is I went with a bunch of my friends. We all saw it at the same time. And Tying this dialogue together, when I first came to L.A. about a year or two later, there was a party at at a strip club for Motley Crue's Girls, Girls, Girls record. And who was I talking to most of the night? But Ray Manzarek, who was there. And who could I? You know, I said, Ray, you, gotta, you have said often before there was a mass hallucination. I said, why? Why We didn't care if, we, if he exposed himself or not. Mm-hmm. But uh, why did you say what you said? He said, well, uh, I couldn't see it, man. And he's very friendly. But uh, The Doors were my favorite band for a really long time. I think it's an age thing, too, in the sense that uh, if you're a certain age when you first hear The Doors, it just really resonates with you. And and in a way that, you know, like maybe a route of maybe one. I still love them. The music's fantastic for me. I I have to say, I may be wrong. And if I am, Lori, write me a note. Tell me I'm a moron. But I, I think that that cover you were talking about was on Rolling Stone, that he's hot, sexy, and he's dead. I, I, I don't think it was spin. You can probably find out very easily. I don't We're think so, but let's look it up. Yeah, okay, you, we can look it up. It, it is Rolling Stone. Oh, okay. Wow. Talk about the nerve. What is that called? The uh, Mandela effect. It was the Mandela when you effect. swear something. Well, did you subscribe to Rolling Stone then as a result of this? No, but it must have been the Mick Jagger cover that I, that I subscribed to for then. I will say too, Lori, I, I mentioned that because I normally would leave that go, but if this goes out and it's incorrect, you would probably be very happy to not be saying that like on the air, okay, if it's true, FYI. Okay, right. Do you agree? I don't know. Maybe. I don't want it to, I always wanted the facts to come out. That's what I thought so, yeah, too. Always. We, yeah. We did a, uh, at Cream, we did a special issues that, and we did one on the doors and that was pretty interesting too, because we, we talked to him. Danny Sugarman was writing for us back then before he wrote that book, so it's incredible how how long they've lasted. It's funny. It's weird, but the stuff still they're still putting out reissues of the, what the fiftieth anniversary of those things. Well, now that we've cleared that up, I've mentioned Madonna, who was a, a really important person to me growing up. I don't actually know, Lori, with all of the conversations that we've had about pop in the eighties, was Madonna a big one of you? She was on a lot of magazine covers, and I'm pretty sure she was in Cream very early on. Dave has ties to Detroit, uh, to Michigan through cream obviously was she a big artist to you you know i love her music to this day when i was really young i wasn't as huge of a fan i'm a very big fan now but at the time 
when it came to women, I liked all my collector magazines are like I have the very first issue of Elle magazine with Yasmin Laban on the cover, who was still Yasmin Parvana at that point. I have a lot of Renee Simonson covers. <laughs> all the Duran girlfriends. girlfriends. I also have an anniversary edition of a Vogue cover with all the supermodels that I got signed over the years. I would say Madonna, I love the music. But I didn't collect her, not magazine-wise. I, I would really say it was the bands that I stuck to in terms of, of, of collecting. And I didn't like television shows, like, you know, because it's hard for people to understand if you're a, you know, a magazine, not that there are many today, reader. Um, but the, women weren't really on the cover of magazines unless they were models in the late 80s and the mid-80s. In fact, Sassy... All their covers for a long time were, quote, regular girls to it's be true. in opposition to the models that were on Seventeen and YM, Young Miss, and Teen, remember Teen Magazine? But Madonna, she kind of broke that mold because she was as beautiful as a model, but she was a celebrity and musician. Well, actually, now it's the other way with, like, the women's magazines, meaning, like, they usually have celebrities like Julia Roberts or someone like that, you know, or Selena Gomez or whoever on the cover to sell covers. It's not so much about models now. You're right. But the reason I brought up Madonna was, Dave, didn't you like interview her very early on? Yeah, we had interviews the very early on. The one bad thing that happened to us, we had this anti-drug thing going on at the time for lengthy reasons. And we wanted someone to wear a t-shirt and, and they would say, why do you think they call it dope anyway? Or something really idiotic. But the point is we would put Madonna on the cover if she would wear the shirt and it just it, it was a stupid ask and she wouldn't do it so well, we ended up you don't tell madonna what to wear you do not tell madonna what to wear but but the transition was pretty interesting instead of her we got the equally fashionable uh, and erudite as you say john mellencamp he's very outspoken I'm, i know but it was just terrible for me what a horrible transition so i, I was bummed about that but yeah we we uh madonna used to actually i worked in ann arbor school kids records before i worked at cream and she was she was there at the time, and I, I didn't I can't say I met her there, but I probably sold her records and stuff like that. You know what I mean? She was there for about I think a year and a half or something like that. And and the guy that she wrote songs with early on, Stephen Brake, he worked at School Kids too, so we we were friends. So it's interesting. So yeah. I actually want to ask more about the cover thing because I think this is interesting. We're talking about how you know there weren't a lot of women on covers and stuff. And uh, I interviewed uh, Jan Wenner recently. I don't know, Dave. I assume you know Jan Wenner or have met Jan Wenner and my old uh, boss. And he, you know, just put out an autobiography, a huge autobiography. It's like seven, eight hundred pages long. And right. uh, you know, I tried to gently broach the subject of the fact that Rolling Stone, uh, I'm not saying this is the case with all magazines, it was a case with Cream or Spin or anything, but, you know, Rolling Stone has come under fire over the years for some of its covers. You know, I brought up the famous Go-Go's one with the underwear that said Go-Go's put out and how the Go-Go's were upset with that. I brought up some ones that came up later, like come, kind of coming under fire for the, uh, the Britney Spears one, you know, the Teen Dream Bedroom one. And he, you know, I didn't expect him to really defend them. I, I, but I expected him to sort of be like, oh yeah, back in the day that was fine, you know, but like now that wouldn't fly. It's something to that effect. But he pretty much just laughed it off. Like, oh yeah, that was a great cover, wasn't it? And I'm like, well, the Gogos <laughs> didn't think so. He's like, oh, whatever. Like he's kind of, you know, I was kind of disappointed by his lack of kind of awareness of why some stuff hasn't aged that well. Did Cream have a lot of women on the covers? And obviously, you know, they had a lot of 
they push the envelope in terms of edginess and sometimes what you call douchebagginess. So like, did you have controversial covers at Cream? You know, we, we had sections of the magazine that were kind of parodies of other things and they're, that they're pretty well known. Like we had a thing called the Cream Dream, okay? In that instance, that was kind of like licensed to publish some kind of sexy photo of, of an artist, male or female, but usually female, and then there'd be some sort of, I hate to say it, but sort of snarky caption about it. And sometimes... I have to say, I wrote some of those and it was kind of funny, but. Uh, Can you remember one? Can you remember one off the top of your head? Okay, uh, I will. There, there, there's a uh, there's a woman that was signed to Rocket Records. Okay. Her name was Judy with an IE, Zook, T-Z-U-K-E. She was okay. fairly obscure, but she put out three records that on MCA distributed Rocket Records. Okay. And we got sent a picture of her. She was coming off of a tour bus and uh, she uh, was wearing, I don't know the terminology, but it looked like a, a tight blue leotard, okay, like the, and, and, and a little dress. And there's really no reason, for, except that you put out three records, to even fe- consider her for that feature. But it was kind of an alluring picture that might, you know, entice people. So we had to write a caption for it. So all I can say about the caption is it's, it's, it's up on the internet somewhere. It was about the, a paragraph long. It contained about 30 or 40 expressions along the lines of tit for tat. Uh, you know, it, no, it, was, it, was a, it, it kind of made sense, but it was so incredibly sexist, I have to confess. But it's funny. And as a photographer later wrote on the website, I, I think it might have been Bob Leaf, okay? He was complaining that he got so much flack from artists for, for the captions and the cream pictures and that sort of thing. She's not wearing a bra under the leotard, and she's definitely got some nippleage. But other than that, it's a fairly, certainly by today's Instagram standards, a fairly tame outfit. It's basically a leotard with a skirt over it. But yeah, she's, you know, she's attractive. But, but, but I mean, I, I, know, I know it's obnoxious. Do bear in mind, in sort of the Jan Wanner thing you wanted someone else to be saying, we were, we were kind of paid to be teenagers, obnoxious and stuff like that. And, and you know... At the end of the day, we, we made a lot of money putting out a, a side magazine called Rock Shots, which was nothing but photos and captions. I have a lot of them. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, uh, you, you mentioned, in fact, Lori, like having pictures on the walls. or sort of Lindsay from Star Hits or whatever. That's what they did. They bought them, they put them on the wall, and there are gorgeous pictures of everybody. And that was very good for our business. It allowed us to do print as well, if you will, on the other magazines and that sort of thing. But it was great fun. You know, it's just it's kind of like a... Fun stuff to write around. And if you think, too, about what was going on in the early 80s with MTV, there were people getting airplay that, for no reasons other than they were kind of making sexy videos and stuff like that. That they had a video. I mean, it, MTV was needed videos then. Did you get a lot of shit from publicists like Judy Zook's publicist or whoever going, why'd you write this caption? This is mean. Or why'd you write this story? Why did you you know, put this snarky thing here? One of my favorite stories today, we would probably leak this, right? But back then we were all so good. Sarah Michelle Geller, very early on in her career, um, wanted to do something with teen people that was very humanitarian. We used to do this column, A Celeb Diary, and she would write it in her own words. So we sent her the, to the Dominican Republic to work with Habitat for Humanity for three days and, you know, work side by side with these kids. And I remember I was going to a movie screening and right as I was going in, 
it was like back in the days of the giant cell phone, my cell phone rang and it was her, her publicist. And I said, well, this costs a dollar 99 minute. So I went and I called from the, the phone booth and I called and I said, what's wrong? And he's like, how dare you put Sarah Michelle in such a terrible, terrible uh, hotel? I mean, do you know how itchy the sheets are? And this is not a Four Seasons style hotel. This is not the standard she's used to. And the food is just terrible. And went on and on and on. And I said, uh, you know, I'm sure the people that she's working with on Habitat for Humanity wouldn't mind that room tonight. But, you know, it, it, when I think Talk about, about the, the lack of self-awareness, I know, oh. I know. But this guy yelled and yelled at me like it went on forever. And I just it was one of those you back then you took you just took it. You know, especially I was probably so young. I mean, if I was 25. Right. That was probably old. But yeah, Dave, I did want to go back to you because I did want to get your take on the fact that you came up in a time where music journalism was still relatively new. I mean, it wasn't really until like the 60s that it was even really a thing, a real force in the business. We've all seen Almost Famous and stuff. You know, we've all seen that it was like a, you know, at least you could tell me what it was like to be there, but it was like a decadent time where you got a lot of access. You know, I've read Lisa Robinson's book where she'd be going on Led Zeppelin's plane for like their entire tour. I don't think that stuff happens anymore. No, I, I agree. I mean, like I said, there was not much competition, so you'd get stuff. Sometimes it wouldn't work to your benefit. Sometimes it would be a nightmare. And by that, what I mean is, for, I'll give you examples of non-Cream-esque bands that I had to go and cover for Cream. Actually, at my own uh, suggestion. One was the band Loverboy, okay? Loverboy. I almost suggested them when you said dopey bands, but I love Loverboy for what it's worth. Well, well, you know, I, I like those songs and I thought that they were the kind of band that we would need to kind of counteract some of the punky stuff we were putting in at the same time, which made sense. But the point is, so what the, CBS Columbia was so thrilled that we were going to do something on Loverboy. And it was actually kind of a positive story. They, they flew me down to Puerto Rico where they were having their CBS convention, their big bash of so many different, uh, you know, so much excess. It was pretty funny, actually. They gave me about a half hour, if you can imagine this fellow journalist, to 45 minutes with all five members individually. So by the time I talked to like the bassist for 45 minutes and they said, well, we'll have the drummer later this afternoon, I was thinking, oh my God, this is more assistant <laughs> than anyone would ever need in a million you years. You really were working for the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of work. The band was hot that night. Uh, but 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 that being said, and the the same journey, another band. I'm talking I'm talking about the dorky bands rather than the cool bands, uh, because it's just interesting because those were the ones in which the label would be jumping up and down that you were doing anything on and thus offer much more. You know, so I mean like a sitting on a bus seat driving to some venue for like three hours with Steve Perry next to me, uh talking about anything. That's living the dream. I would love to spend any time with Steve Perry. I adore Steve Perry. Yeah, well, uh, it's funny because you run out of stuff to talk with. So it becomes an art to be able to just kind of make conversation with all these people, as you guys both know. You're, you're, you're both very good at that, I'm sure, too. The other axis was flying all over the place. The people of my generation, I sound like an old man when I say this, though, who didn't have full-time jobs, 
would often like eat on labels because especially in New York and LA, there'd be party every night at various places and stuff like that. That made perfect sense to go do that. That was fine. Back then, everyone and their brother and, and uh, sister would be getting free records in the mail, many, many, many of them all the time. Uh, and so as a result, they'd take the records they didn't want and just sell them and just like eat off of it. That would be their salary. And the labels knew about it. There wasn't much they could do about it overall. The access was good. People would call up. People would like to chat. I mean, I, I, I could go on forever about this, but at Cream, we would get calls from people that were just like random, like Phoebe Snow. Billy Joel would call up to, to be, he was pissed off at a caption that actually I wrote about Christy Brinkley. It was actually a pretty funny caption. For better or worse, sometimes I think maybe the press did take it too far with some nasty barbs, but a lot of times, you know, it was called rock criticism, right? It was like you were supposed to say if something sucked and given a good reason for it. But I feel like that kind of went away. And I think that's probably a function of, the internet as well. I feel like the meanness went to social media and the mean people writing captions on other people's Instagram saying you're ugly, you're fat, your album sucks. So now the press doesn't need to be piling on, if that makes sense. It does. I don't know if this is 100% jives with what you're talking about, but when I was at Entertainment Weekly, first thing I did there was a big story on Guns N' Roses, okay? And that would have been like the very tail end. It was probably like 91. So it's out of the, the scheme, but it makes sense for what you're talking about. The, that was exactly when photographers already went through this, but that was when their management insisted that all journalists that were going to try to talk to them would sign pre-release documents that would allow the publicist and the management label to okay the quotes. So we said, well, we're not going to do that. So we didn't do it. Whoa. But but when that started to happen, it never really kind of went away in a sense, just the, the access became harder and harder for everybody. And there was unspoken understandings which is exactly what you're talking about right now overall you know you know you knew that the gravy train would stop if you if you pissed off the wrong you know person the wrong time and that still happens it absolutely happens Lori, do you have anything to add yeah i think it's it's much more focused on the music there's some really great rock critics there's one at the guardian that i really love there is Lindsay Soldaz at the New York Times. I think it's focused on the music. And I hate to say this, but I think a lot of times male critics, it was that old, you can't be a musician, so let's take pot shots at one. And I think today there are so many really great female rock critics out there, and they're not as showy. They're not as showy, look at me, look at me. But if you read the pieces, Marissa Moss, who is an, a country um, rock critic, so brilliant. So she has a book called Her Country that's out. That's so good. I just think it's not as showy. You have to admit that all the sophomore cream stuff that we loved. I did. We did. I did. I don't know if it would fly now. I but it was sophomoric. But Come I think, on, let's all admit it. Let's admit it. We were just talking about him making tit-for-tat jokes about a girl it. with her nipples <laughs> showing. This is not me being mean. I love it. I still have so I still have my Boy Howdy t-shirt. But you you asked me. I, I don't think there is as many outlets. And I don't think, but I think in general, there are some really strong writers. Like a lot of obviously music journalists, certainly if they're working a day like all of us, we're doing stuff for the internet a lot more than print. And making no money. What are the print magazines now? There's Mojo, there's which mostly leans towards, you know, covering a lot of older stuff, some new stuff. Rolling Stone, I guess. 
They have tried to revive Cream, actually. I haven't asked you, Dave, about how you feel about the Cream revival. They're trying to capture that old spirit, but kind of apply it to the marketplace we have now, which is a very different marketplace than it was in 1979, 1986. Uh, and I think they've gotten some things right, and I think they've gotten some things kind of wrong, or, or they're trying to maybe capture something that can't be recaptured, but you were there, so I want your thoughts on it. Well, actually, this this relates to... Uh... To Mojo Magazine, who, who I've been writing for since they since they started, you'll find this interesting because it, it touches on what you talked about. Within the past five years, I did an interview with David Crosby for them. Okay, and uh, I went up to uh, Santa Barbara. Uh, we were at one of the nicest hotels there, staring at the beach, having lunch, just talking for a couple hours. There was like a road on that beach in Santa Barbara, and then there were a bunch of like summer kids in bathing suits and a lot of girls just hanging around in, in like bathing suits. Right. Okay. And so he said some really funny, not, not really ultimately sexist stuff, but sort of in, he enjoyed life, you know, and was talking about cute girls on the beach. It's kind of a, a pop cliche of the sixties, the girls on the beach point is I wanted to take one of those quotes and make it part of my lead. And in 2020 or 2019 or 18, the male mojo editor said, you know, that's pretty funny, but that will really kind of give the wrong impression of the, what David Crosby is about, particularly for our readers at this point. And, you know, the fact is, you know, I'm no spring chicken and I'm younger than David Crosby was, but a bunch of old guys kind of gawking at, at, at women in bikinis on the beach is not, he's right, it's not a good look. But the point is, the freedom that I might have had a long time ago, that the press might have had a long time ago, it's kind of changed with the time. And that's one way it's changed with the time. Yeah, the freedom to to come across as sexist. I mean, that's one freedom you might not want, really care about having anymore. But I want to tell you, it's because it's print. If you could have had that in a in a way that we may have heard the exchange, it may not have sounded so sexist. Does that make sense? I agree. I don't want to get this into a huge debate, but, you know, Sassy had cute band alert where you talked about the Devlin's not having facial hair. But why was, did they have that? That's what I was saying. It was flipping the objectification. Yeah, it was a joke making a joke at the expense of the fact that women all these years had been object objectified. I think, though, actually, though, to take it all the way back to the beginning that I mentioned at the top of this conversation that got me so into music was I started off with the magazine's Team B. 16 and Tiger Beat, which were teen idol magazines with definitely young girls whose hormones were all the rage and all the flutter and all the fluster. And it was all like, look at these cute boys. And it always was written with this idea that you could maybe date them. You know, they would ask John Taylor, whoever, like what kind of girl they liked, what they like to do on a date. You know, they always said in it, this was so funny. They always said that Andy Gibb or whoever it was, when they asked him what kind of girl they liked, they always said they liked a natural girl, a girl next door who didn't wear a lot of makeup. I know they did that because they knew there were 12 year old girls reading and they didn't want the 12 year old girls going, mom, should I put on a ton of makeup on my face and try to look like I'm 28? So that John Taylor will like me, because if you look at Renee Simonson and Yasmin Laban, the guys under Andran didn't like no natural girls. They like girls who look like Nagel paintings with tons of makeup. But anyway, my point is those magazines, you could say, and I'm not saying it was a bad thing, but, you know, they were a little objectifying. Of course they were. 
women live in this world too. Women live in this objectified, sexist world. And we like to see pictures of John Taylor with his shirt buttoned down to the waist. But there's a little bit of a difference between <laughs> girls looking at it's sexy different. guys in magazines and uh, old timers watching young women maybe who haven't even had their periods yet on the beach frolicking. <laughs> well, whatever it takes to sell records, I guess, is a good thing because nowadays, I mean, you like you said, Laurie, we should just end this by saying this was a golden era. Are there even any magazines anymore? I just am glad that we all grew up in our different ways with print magazines because I do think, I mean, I think I was going to be a big music fan no matter what. I mean, it's just like it's in my blood. It's in Laurie's blood. It's in your blood, Dave. But like, I think the fact that I grew up with twinfold i grew up with mtv in my house and i grew up with a newsstand at the mall and my my i didn't even mention this but my uncle joe owned a newsstand in encino and i used to love to go visit there and you know get magazines there but having access to all those magazines but i definitely discovered a lot of music from positive reviews from writers whose names i respected it's like oh if they like it or if this magazine likes it i'm probably gonna like it I definitely read all the interviews and knew a lot about my favorite bands from either reading interviews with them or sometimes, you know, listening to interviews they did on MTV or on morning radio, you know, probably learned a little bit through osmosis about how to conduct an interview from reading those. So like, I'm very grateful that I grew up with magazines in the eighties because I think the nineties was probably the last golden era for that kind of access. It's down to access really what it was. I do think we're all sitting here today because of those magazines. And I would like to see a return to that. You know, Friends is the number one show on Netflix. You know, for it was number one for ages. Kids today like revisiting this retro world that they were never a part of. They romanticize it the same way when I was growing up. We romanticized the 50s and the 60s, the, you know, the hippies and the, um, you know, Greece. Happy days in Greece and all that stuff, right? And then you have today all these fantastic indie groups that are coming up, Japanese Breakfast and Bibirubi and um, Rina Sawiyama. And there's so many, look at Boy Genius, right? I do feel that there's a scene today that would be serviced so well by magazines. And I just don't know what you said before, the idea of you wouldn't have it to hold. And we don't live in that kind of a world anymore. You know, like I have a, I have books and bookshelves and, you know, magazines. And I still think they would read. It's just got to be in their own delivery system. I really enjoyed speaking to you guys. It was great to reconnect with both of you. So thanks so much to Dave DiMartino and Lori Majewski for joining me. And thanks everyone listening. Remember to give Totally 80s some love with a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And I will catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. <laughs>